Hello friends, welcome to a very special episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast. Today's show was originally recorded as part of the show and tell series from Silicon Craftsman and shared with their YouTube channel, but we had so much fun and we learned so much that we decided to share it in this podcast as well. So today you'll be listening to the original conversation and learn about the product journey and user experience insights from Trevor and the Croncats team. Enjoy! This podcast is sponsored by Metapool. Metapool is the first liquid staking solution in Nier. And you may be wondering, what is liquid staking? Well, with traditional staking, you simply deposit your Nier on a validator to help secure the network and you receive staking rewards in return, which are about 10% per year at the moment. You think about it, that is pretty great. But there are some limitations. Namely, all the money that you lock for staking, it's just sitting there idle. Not much use to it other than staking. Enter Metapool. When you stake with Metapool, you receive SDNIR in return. SDNIR serves as a receipt that Proof to the entire world that you have a certain amount of near and corresponding value locked in staking. And it allows you to take that receipt to any of the many projects in the growing DeFi ecosystem and use that value towards DeFi money Legos. So for instance, at the moment, you can issue USD stablecoin through OIN Finance or participate on farming with Ref Finance. Another way to put it may be that liquid staking, it's like Schrodinger's cat. While you stake with Metapool, you are simultaneously staking to help secure and decentralize the network, and you have immediate access to all your funds to go participate in the ecosystem. I'm not sure if that was a good example, but I think you get the idea. Staking with Metapool is the easiest and smartest way to stake on the Near ecosystem. If you have not checked them out, go to metapool.app. By supporting them, you are supporting us. Thank you. Hello, friends. Welcome to the first ever show and tell series by Silicon Craftsman. This is a series to go deep on the product and design of some of the best and brightest products building on the Near ecosystem. It is inspired by the Launch and Learn series and the original whiteboard series that the Near team has with technical deep dives. I am very excited to have here with me today, Trevor. Welcome. Hey, nice to have you and me. <laughs> Trevor is the mastermind behind Croncats. I actually don't know what your role is. But you could just call me one of the founders of Croncat. There's there's no one person responsible for this. Nice. It's always interesting to me that the founders and like product managers are very similar in the sense that they wear all the hats. Yep. Yep, exactly. Could be marketing, could be sales, could be engineering, could be product design, you name it. Yeah, everybody's important. All roles are important. Beautiful. So I'm really excited to have Croncat as a first series because I've seen a lot about you guys in the ecosystem. I think you are like core infrastructure, I would call it. A lot of projects are going to build using uh, your tools. But what I find most interesting is that so far, a lot of the presentations and the pitch have been aimed at getting people to use Croncat as end users. I'm more interested now to try to like deconstruct it a bit more at like a team level. So if you were explaining to a fellow product or designer joining the team, or if you had to explain maybe to a board of directors or break down the product, how we got here and where it is going potentially. Yeah. As you mentioned, Croncat is a core utility. It's built for other applications to build on top of. And it started out as addressing a need that was seen from so many other applications and products that I've worked on. So really, I think the reason why you asked me to talk with you today is what led us to Croncat, what led us to create some of these user experience tools for other dApps. So let's jump into it because basically it's critical when you're thinking about building new products on blockchain to understand what the problems are and what, what we can do about them. 
So I'll just start off with a few of these applications that I've built before and what the issues were so that you can get the context. Just, just before yeah. we jump in, sorry to interrupt. It may be useful if we give like a two sentence summary of what Cronkets is. Sure. And then we're going to start to deconstruct how we got there. How would you define it? Yeah. Croncat is the decentralized scheduling service for blockchain transactions. If you want so to do enables... something in the future, you need Croncat. You need to have some way of a uh, non-user triggered transaction. So traditionally, people would have to sign for the transaction with their wallet. Yep. Which means that somebody has to be there to press the approve. And Croncat's enabled you to automate that into the future based on parameters to be determined. Yep. And if I were to include that to my application, I could basically build a parameter as part of my user journey and let Croncat handle all the technical complexity. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And a, a key thing Beautiful. to note here is you're not signing right then, but also when Croncat executes, Croncat sandboxes that execution away so it's a safe transaction rather than Croncat messing with any of those parameters. Got it. Okay. I'd love to see how you got to this point because it is both beautiful in its simplicity, but it's got that high level of technical abstraction that it tells me you understand the needs of everyday applications and having the flexibility around scheduling transactions and security implications, as you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. So just a quick about me, I'm a multi startup founder. So I've gone through a bunch of these iteration cycles with different products. The first one that really kicked off my entrepreneurial mindset here was Babbler. Babbler was a chat service that was built on top of Tumblr. Before then, nobody could chat on Tumblr. And so we did a black box experiment where we had this idea for chatting on Tumblr um, and we made some UI mockups about it and sent it out to the community of Tumblr and basically had just an email signup form and, and was like, let's test the waters. If anybody's interested, we'll get some emails. And we were thinking not very much. Ended up getting about 50,000 people signing up for this thing and saying, yes, I want that. Wow. And our minds were blown at that point. So we spent the next few months fully building that out and preparing for launch. We launched that service with 16 servers and a bunch of developers or a small team of developers. And we launched over a live stream that had about 26,000 people actively watching. And we had about... What do you this was 2013. So what we were trying to do was new for its time, like basically like Slack, but for Tumblr. You were the original DM when you slide into Slack. Yeah, yeah, we were the DM plus media. Like it was this little chat window that would float around with you. It was a Chrome extension. So it would basically connect you and your Tumblr followers across the internet. So if you remember like Pinterest, you could pin something, you could float around and chat with people. And then you could actually like submit media from websites inside of your chat and there's a bunch of cool stuff that's amazing were yeah. there any integration or permission issues with tumblr or they had an open platform where anyone could plug in yeah we hacked around it <laughs> the the api was very minimal and so we had to supplement like basically we only got an oauth token and a follower list and so we had to supplement that with an infrastructure for websockets and for uh, message data and for a pipeline and it got crazy unsustainable. Like I say here out the gate on our launch, we actually crashed. Like we had about a thousand people per second signing up and that was too much for our service to handle specifically processing all of the OAuth data and requesting those lists. We pulled the LinkedIn trick, which is basically, Hey, get the list of people that follow you or follow that you follow and message those people out so that you can do this growth trajectory there. But yeah, that was a, a really cool product. And growth hacking, yeah. jumps, you know, growth melting the servers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I worked on that for about two years and we had a lot of good products growth, but really it wasn't really a sustainable model. And I think 
two things that came out of that was one, that infrastructure is really critical. Had we decentralized this thing, I actually think we would never have crashed. And then secondly, in that sort of mindset of OAuth and other stuff, there's no good way of making that social graph without a centralized party. So just a couple interesting takeaways. And, and, and I find it fascinating because I was thinking how the, the infrastructure piece would eventually lead you to the decentralized world of Nier. But I'm wondering just to put things on a timeline, mm -hmm. you had your own servers, which were melting down where in the AWS and I guess like the cloud world that we live in now, where would that be placed? Because I'm wondering whether there were alternatives to have this hosted elsewhere and whether that would have changed the unit economics of running these potentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if we were to build it today, back in the day, we were using a service called AppFog, which became, I believe, it was another cloud provider that has since gone away. So if this was AWS, it would be somewhere in the, the, the ECS, EC2 cluster stuff. We ran a bunch of raw instances that were just Node and Go servers that processed that data. And then this was also pre-web RTC, which meant that a lot of our, our web sockets were poorly supported on browsers. We also had a majority use polling, which was also limited in its capability. So I think now there's so much bandwidth for peer-to-peer -peer technology that a chat service like this is much easier to do. And then on top of that, things like like the Whisper protocol and others are really good to add encryption on top of that. Wow, that's fascinating. That's good. I don't want to hold you much too back on Pavler, although at the back of my mind, I was wondering whether the project had a business model at all at any point in time. Could it have become sustainable with a different turn of events? Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Let's not dwell on the past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could we could talk on that for a long, but I want to move to Donef, which was a hackathon project built in 2017. This project, the whole goal of it was to create a multi-ownership model for open source projects. So basically you could have a wallet that granted shares to each of the contributors of that project which was pretty sweet because there wasn't really a contract multi-sig wallet concept at the time that really helped non-multi-sig users. So basically what I'm saying is it's taking that concept of, hey, we, we went to a restaurant, there's a group of us, maybe 20 of us, we wanna pay the bill and split the bill between the 20 of us. It's really hard to do that with crypto and it's specifically Ethereum. So we created that contract system that based off of your contributions, you could be granted more percentage of that uh, total balance and people could easily donate to that uh, project and they could easily support that development and the developers could then pull out funds for making things happen. It's funny because it's basically the early seeds of a DAO treasury. <laughs> Definitely ahead of your time. I've been doing a lot of work with the AstroDAO team, and it seems like we're just getting to that point where the back-end contracts and the front-end ease-of-use functionality are coming together. And I love it that you, the takeaway, the two-letter, two-word takeaway is difficult adoption because now we're really shifting gears towards identifying, okay, if we have functioning DAO infrastructure, who uses this and how yes. are they using it? Like it, it, how, what's the next iteration? So definitely ahead of your time, but really happy that you're around the ecosystem still because we'll be getting some insights from you, hopefully. Yeah, I, I wanted to highlight that specifically because we were battling with the technical, non-technical user. So the technical user, the developer, saw Donut wallets as like amazing. But the non-technical user had no idea even how to interact with this thing. It was just too much effort. <laughs> it was so hard to do, especially with slow block times, weird things like gas fees and a bunch of other reasons. It's still a great project and it would be easy to resurrect. It's just a really great example of things that you can build upon and take further as we build these DAOs.
I'm wondering whether it's going to come up later in the presentation, but I do think that it's interesting how the technical layer may put limitations on your application. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the benefits of building on near as opposed to Ethereum is that the technical layer is equally or even more powerful, but it also gives the builder a lot more flexibility on how to make it user-friendly, or I guess you widen the scope to bring in all the non-technical users. Yes, I'm happy that you mentioned that. That's all that I wanna to touch on that in, in maybe a, a little bit here, but basically why did I choose Near over Ethereum, over Cosmos, over all those? Let's jump into that. I still like all those blockchains, but why did I spend time building on Near? So maybe let's touch on that once once we talk through the journey here, because that's important. The next one I wanna talk about is Gachi. So if you're familiar with the Tamagotchi uh, a while ago, right? Like you have this pet, you wanna feed it, you want to exercise it, you want to fight, you want to let it sleep and whatnot. I loved this project to death. I worked so hard on it. It had a really cute UI and I, I shipped it. But the problem is, okay, actually one last point. It was built on NFTs. So take a crypto kitty that lives on a planet that has this item. And that was your Tamagotchi. So... I, there was a project CryptoKitties and Xerox Planets, and there was a couple random like item-based NFTs. And I compiled those all into a composed NFT that, that you could own and that you could feed and have actions. So that was- That is amazing. 2018, I believe. And so the whole thing worked and it was amazing. Had a massive problem though. For a Tamagotchi that is time-based, how do you get the user to come back? If your thing is living on chain, how does the chain tell you that you need to go do something? It just doesn't. So, so the element where the Tamagotchi says, I'm hungry or I need to sleep, mm -hmm. couldn't be triggered, I guess. Or even if it died, like you didn't feed it, it died. The chain. Oh my God. This is Gachi's, it's called Schrodinger's cat. Schrodinger's Gachi. Yeah. Your Tamagotchi is both dead and alive until you trigger the action to kill it. Oh Ex Jesus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it is so good. So like a user would have to pay to confirm that it had died, even though they don't want to do that. <laughs> it's just, whoa. It's the most expensive funeral I've ever paid for. Yeah. So I didn't want to do that. I actually stopped the project because of that. I didn't want to have a centralized service that held PII and a bunch of other things. And I'm sad about that. I want to bring it back, but it needs to have a way that has a, a viral loop that brings that user back. I can see where things are leading on to Croncats. This is starting we're, to make sense. I, we're I'm getting following. there, right? Yeah. Yeah, yes, yeah. hopefully all... our viewers <laughs> on the recording will also start to add up. Pause, go get some popcorn. This is getting good. There we go. So the next stepping stone here was Hobby Hodler. This was another hackathon project that, so let's say you participate in a bunch of blockchains. You hold balances on tons of different wallets. You're a developer or you're an experienced crypto trader or whatever. You want to know what is my balance and portfolio across everything like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Cosmos, Tezos, Polkadot. Give me everything. So I want to know exactly what percentage are my holdings? Am I over collateralized on one or what do I want to research into and make sure that my portfolio is shaped the way that I want to move? So I built this as a way that you could run the service yourself. Or we would have a public subscription model that like indexed the data for you so that you can do it. But what I really wanted- Is that wanted... by listing all your wallets and it just prompts the information? Yeah. So the whole idea was you would choose the assets that, or sorry, the wallet addresses that you have, and it would go through and pull a bunch of the balances. And the whole point there was for technical users, you could fully run this thing yourself and have it just index for you and do all the things. And then down the line, I wanted to ship it so that it anonymized the indexing and you could get pay to index for people and encrypt them in little payloads that sat on decentralized storage. 
And the whole idea there was to create a decentralized aggregation of portfolio data. And then on top of that, lay a social layer that aggregated portfolio performance from a, like a social network standpoint. So it didn't say who held things, but it showed like top performance and what baskets were doing well. So you could actually learn from like the greater economy and maybe hedge funds. You're watching some of these big accounts move and make decisions and you can copy those. Yeah, so follow the smart money. So if I yeah. know someone through say the near ecosystem and I respect them, I know they're smart, I know that they're active with several projects, I would technically be able to see their entire portfolio and then yeah. by proxy follow some of the other buys. But yes. then you anonymize it. So anyone yeah, that's really smart. I like it. Yeah, you can anonymize through the way that you aggregate. You don't need to aggregate with addresses. You just need to aggregate the ratio of assets held, which is really nice. I want to give a shout mm -hmm. out really quick to token sets actually, because they came out around the same time. And really, I think they popularized this social basket. I don't know what you really call it, but like, here's a portfolio ratio that we're going to either create an index off of, or that you could buy into. This was similar to where I was going. It's fascinating because it's basically the crypto version of a buying recommendation algorithm on Amazon. Mm -hmm. If you bought book A, you may be interested in book B. Or if you bought an office chair, you may be interested in a stand-up desk. Once you do enough research to understand and believe and have faith in a project, if you look at somebody who's presumably also have a level of conviction and they bought something else, you're putting your trust in that other person that you don't have to know them. All you have to know is that they've taken previous decisions that align with yours and then everything else is validation by proxy. Yeah, and it's just the accumulation of the community mindset, the mind share of everyone committing to publicizing this type of data. But that, that actually came with two problems. It was an amazing utility, but the business model, I couldn't get it to work where if you paid a subscription, like now I have aggregations or indexing of your data. And I didn't feel comfortable with that. Like that, that takes away privacy. And it never really met my goal of full decentralization with full anonymization. So that was a huge bummer. And then the other part was it took a lot of time to get those aggregations to work for every blockchain. <laughs> Even back in the day, what do you... I started this in 2018, like mid to end of 2018. And I worked on it for probably nine months. Did you win the hackathon? I did. Yeah. Thank you. Actually, this was for ETH Global, one of the first ETH Globals. And yeah, everybody loved it. I actually still have that repo public and available on my GitLab if anyone's curious. We'll add it to the show notes. Sounds good. Yeah, so there's my huge list of challenges right there. We don't need to reiterate them. Those are the things that I've been cognizant of and really wanna drive to fix with everything that we're, that I'm building that other people build. So yeah. I, I think just really briefly, the, the list of challenges, a summary, if, if you wanna go back, I think that we've definitely touched on them. Mm -hmm. What I would like to agree to is that a lot of those things are embedded into the infrastructure. Like Ethereum has some challenges right now that we can't uh, overcome from an application layer. But what I see is that a lot of product people and designers and just people outside of crypto, they usually write off crypto or they don't consider the decentralized space as a good place to build their business or their startup. Because once they look at these uh, constraints, they just go somewhere else. So it's really interesting for me that now we have the ability to overcome some of these challenges, both on NEAR, but NEAR is not the only blockchain. I think it's the best op option, but there are more out there. So yeah, it's interesting to basically even come back at the same ideas that you've worked on in the past. I want to see Gochi deployed on Aurora. This has to come back. <laughs> so I think that... Even though the problems are well understood, we also need to reiterate the point that we are overcoming these problems and we're going back to 
stage one, if you can build anything without these constraints, what are we going to build? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think there's actually the, the point that you're saying here is people are too focused on just the decentralized and just the blockchain aspects. And I think a lot of folks should help build some of the systems that were on Web2 in a Web3 manner. Because ultimately, yeah, everyone's focused on blockchain. That's a database. Could you imagine if Web2 was still stuck on just, hey, let's build these cool things on a database. That's great. And then maybe you have a payment system, but you need so much more. And there's so much more that helps make those apps what they are. And I, I, I did have a look ahead of the presentation. So I know that you're going to dive into this, but I guess that the way that I would summarize it is people would focus on either the things that excite them and trigger their imagination. So in Web 2.0, everything is AI and machine learning now. No one really understands what it is, but it seems like a universe of possibility and everybody wants to pull some of that in. But then the second category of people, and I think part of people are in this because this is their job, they would focus on the bottlenecks. If they see something on the roadmap that it's going to create problems, delay delivery, or just make it unable to build at all, then they focus on that. So once again, I think that the prominent blockchains have real challenges and the new challenger blockchains or scaling blockchains overcome this. So we just have to put up the bat signal for the product and design people to come here and learn with us from you. So please tell us more. Yeah, there's so much discussion about scaling and all these things for the blockchain, but there's not enough discussion about all the other pieces that are needed. And that's where I like my headspace to be. Here's the question. What is the intersection of UX needs and what I want to build for UX? And I think that's really important for a lot of other folks as well. If you're talking about building a decentralized app on blockchain, are you just talking about a contract? Are you just talking about some logic that lives in a chain? Or are you going to actually make an app that has multiple facets about it? And the factors here that I want to address are, did you actually find a solution to the problem? Or are you just fitting blockchain into that problem? Are you creating network effects with blockchain? Are you creating network effects by viral loops that are extending those network effects? How catchy or simple is the idea? That one specifically, like, why is Croncat na named Croncat? Because Cron itself is so dull and boring. And I could get so technical on the pitch and be like, what's this transaction thing that's blah, 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 blah. No, if you actually take a minute to find something that people could latch onto, I think that actually boosts the adoption and contributes to the to community and the mindset and the you need a little bit of that fun and catchy to make something work and then the last 100%. thing is like having a solid the one ethos. thread <laughs> in common from all your projects is brilliant marketing all the names are great <laughs> it's, Thanks. it's it's really good to see that mix between having the creativity in the real world and understanding the people that will be using the product and why, but also being able to understand how the machines work and how to configure them in such a way that actually deliver what the users want or need, which you've highlighted here really well. I think the network effects and viral loops bit would be gamification in some ways. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'd love to see you expand on that last point of ethos behind the behavior because blockchain yes. builds in a weird financial element into that gamification, <laughs> which can become very tricky in some yeah, so scenarios. The last part, the ethos part was actually new to me. You can think of uh, Bitcoin maximalists as kicking that off where it's not just about some technical achievement. It's about almost a religious belief that this technical implementation is the right way. Now, I'm not saying that you have to go be a maximalist or, or do those things, but there should be a solid foundation, an ethos that drives a product. And why are you building that product? Is it just to satisfy a business model? 
Or is the ethos going to create itself a value that that people hold above some token collateral or some just a, a, a short time payment scheme, if that makes sense. So I think that's the unique thing about blockchain. You you have this financial payment system that's got some sort of crazy religious backing because it's solid in its ethos. I think it comes down to like first principles. I know that some of the startup community is big on these. Tim Ferriss loves going back to first principles. There's a fair few mental models and frameworks. The Knowledge Project by Shane Parrish is really good at deconstructing these mental models. Even things like asking five why, you ask a question why, and then you keep breaking down your assumption on your setup. And I think that Crypto is a very interesting crossroads because now we have those original builders that do have that very strong ethos built in. It's not just decentralization for the centralization sake. They see past, you know, the, the technical requirement is centralized or decentralized. They see at the people operating centralized companies and they see at the behaviors of the people operating centralized companies. It's not just, I guess it's a mix between what they've actually done to date the assumptions of what they can do with the power that they have to date and the big gray area in between of, well, because they are centralized, we'll never know if they're going in between. And crypto and conspiracies are often hand in hand, but it's, look, you don't need to have the evidence in hand that there is wrongdoing when you can have a model that it's more open, more transparent, more decentralized, which is the big irony of some people wanting to regulate crypto because it's full of shadowy supercoders. We're actually wanting to fix a lot of the problems that we see in society more broadly. And this is the weird loop where we enter where, where, okay, we've got those core developers that are very strongly driven by ethos, but you lose most users because most users don't care. You yeah. still need to build a product that solves a problem for the user mm-hmm. and that creates value for the user. So we're starting to bring in a lot of entrepreneurs, designers, product people, that they don't really care whether Facebook is going to kill us all. They do care is, okay, how do we build something that A, B, and C customer segments can use? So it's, it's a beautiful intertwining of both groups. And I think that there's a place for all of them. Up the stack, they'll become the same. But yeah, I, I do like that you've mentioned it there. Because there are some products in crypto that if the assumption is that your first user base will be crypto people have embedded in them the decentralization and the, yeah, I guess it's more of a libertarian ethos. Yeah, but I think practically speaking, DAOs are starting to unlock that connection. There's the ethos for developers because they believe in this decentralization aspect. DAOs connect how non-technical users are able to see that vision and practically apply that to their lives in some way. You know, they, they can actually join this community that they believe in. They can vote on things. They can even have shared ownership in that thing. What a great thing. Like, what a great time to be alive. <laughs> Incredible time. Definitely for a builder, definitely for people wanting to get involved. Now nah, it's good. I'll let you go on with the presentation. Yeah, I wanted to touch on a couple of things that maybe this is a little bit of a critique and maybe maybe at some point we could have an open open forum with just reviewing. I've seen many channels reviewing UI and UX and calling out things that are broken. I think there's so much focus from some of the decentralized applications that they miss those viral loops and the network effects that are required for the growth of those projects. I'm not gonna call out any specifically, but I think it's really important that we take some time to make sure that there are those elements of user experience built in because those will naturally grow the platform and the blockchain usage and the ethos and everything else. Like it's really important to not miss those critical pieces I 100% agree. That's why we have you here. Uh, We want people who are a bit further ahead in the journey to please share what they know. Because most people, and I would put myself in that bucket maybe a bit in the past, probably still 
most people would say, okay, I acknowledge that my user experience is not optimal. How can I improve? What are the resources? Because Web 3.0 is a different beast. For me, the challenge is everything that I know and I can see on Figma with no code tools, with the speed at which the centralized world is moving gets murky when you enter the Web 3.0 because it's just a different technical stack. It's a different community. It's a bit challenging. So we have this series to start getting the word out there and the podcast and through the guild, the Silicon Craftsmen, we're doing work one-on-one with some projects. So it's because it's just your experience going. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's talk about the tools to make that happen. Cause where we're headed in this presentation here. I want to first do a quick, like me personally, I don't think about UX from a web two standpoint anymore, but I wanted to show people my process and how I keep myself focused. So here's my list. I don't want to build things that are centralized. I don't want to build enterprise software. I don't want to build web two business models or platform locked services like iOS apps or things that lack missions and ethos that I, I don't understand or don't want to continue. I mention all that because I've built all of those things in the past in my career and the outcomes are unsatisfactory and leave me wanting more. And while some of them were successful, it just lacks meaning in the grander scheme of things. And I see web three and the things that we're looking at today and and building in the future as sustainable and ways that we can boost the needs of under unprivileged people and bridge the gap of wealth and so many other things that really matter as a society and as humanity. It's not my race versus your race anymore. Web3 can be a way that provides a much more fair playing field. So there is a caveat there that it can actually lock in disparity and lock in a racial gap. It can do so many bad things, uh, bad by my definition. So I guess there's a, the real thing here is if if you don't lock in ethos into what you're building, it probably will face some entropy that points in a poor direction. Yeah, no, I think just really a mindful of time. What I find interesting is that if you were to show this list to a traditional engineer, the first thing that they would retort, if they have a sense of humor, the witty like me is, well, you don't want to make money. There is a lot of money in doing the things that are on this list, but they're making, you'd be making money working for somebody else in maintaining what already exists. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be differentiated from having conviction into building things differently. And it may take time as you went through the list of all your projects and you can always make money freelancing. But I was like, wow, this guy has been at it since 2013. And it's that serial entrepreneurship where, look, you'll take the hit. Two months, two years, whatever time. The irony is that by being early and building the future, you may fail, it may evolve, you take some hits. But if anyone's been around the crypto space for long enough, these are the people that end up making disproportionate returns because you're not seeking them. Mm-hmm. So just building out the park where everybody else comes to play, not because you want to make money from everybody else going to a new park. It's because you want to see the park built. So yeah, I think that's the best combination. Conviction, patience, artwork. Just a dumb side comment here. You could actually define your money as a short-term lived thing, where if you look at the span of the last 30 years or so that the internet's been around, People have made wild amounts of money and now they're just maintaining these products. Zoom out farther, like a couple hundred years. That wealth shift has not really moved outside of a few unicorn billionaires. It's all just drowning in interest. So if you think about a different model with Web3, if you can actually shift the bell curve a little bit and make it less curved and more flat, 
the the compounding wealth and the distribution of wealth would actually address the majority of the world's problems just by the sheer shift and magnitude of that shift. Look, the, the two key trends that I see, and we've summarized in what we call now the global south, Nearest Pano is taking off, we've got strong engagement all over Africa, Southeast Asia, I'm in Australia. The barriers to education are gone. Now people can learn programming and the whole stack to work in tech, including product and design for free or extremely affordable. They, the barriers to working for a big multinational company to have a stable income are gone. Even the barriers of investment are gone, especially in crypto. So the two massive forces are, we're getting a lot of young people that are starting to realize that without relying or being constrained by the local government or the local employment market, they can train themselves and surround themselves online. And crypto enables them to build solutions that may be more like hyper-local. The truth is the tech that we have right now captured low-hanging fruit, what is consistent for the entire world? Entertainment. Everyone uses a social media platform the same way. But Facebook or that top tier, be it a Spotify, be it a Netflix, beyond the entertainment level, it is actually very hard to create products because each market is very different. And the more the technology advances, the more niche that markets get. I mean, it happened the same with the, with the manufacturing. The more advanced manufacturing, the more able that we're able to create smaller batches of things. So now instead of having one fridge for everyone, there's 15 million fridges in different sizes and colors. And the customer segments just keep increasing, which is why I've got an obsession, maybe an unhealthy obsession with product and understanding who the users are and empowering people to build for them because crypto really opens up a Cambrian explosion of innovation that it really goes beyond NFTs or tokens mm -hmm. as we see them today. So exactly. anyway, I'll hand over back the podium. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to water everything that I've said down into a simple formula. If you're watching, I want you to take this formula and apply it to your model. and I think the the hierarchy that's in place, I'm, I'm showing a donut circle here that kind of repeats itself. It starts with community. You just mentioned it. You can find a bunch of folks online to help you build something or even just support you. Cheerleading is important. If you find that kind of community to back this idea, at this point, it could be just an idea. You have the groundwork to move into contribution. And maybe you're the first person to kick that off, but find people that believe in the same thing or in, in some idea and can help you develop and grow that thing. Croncat is not built by just me. Hobby Hodler was built just by me. Guess what? It died. <laughs> so I think it's really important to have that community base and then have the contribution base, which is you have this pyramid here of everybody that supports you people that can help you and you don't have to sit up there at the top. What's great is if you can find an ethos and a mission to back that idea, now you have a sustainable value that is backing the reason why that idea is good or is worth pursuing. And then I put product last because I'm going to hammer on this a few times. The user is not just some person. The user is the most important aspect here. And then the experience. The experience is the implementation, but the user is the reason. And the implementation can make, it can happen in so many different forms that it's almost not worth thinking about the implementation until you really understand the user. It's an excellent way to summarize it. and. Once you understand this framework, you actually can apply it to anything. We often have a problem of focusing on the symptom of things or on the consequence of things, but the real opportunity lies in focusing on the cause. What are the actual forces at the core of the interaction, which is where the user is? Because if you, I guess, uh, start adapting or, or catering for those forces, you can change the outcome, which is the product. I always tell people, look, you can change the interface, you can change the colors, you could get rid of buttons, bring them in. That's the easy part-ish. 
yeah. the hard part is knowing what you're doing. I guess I'm working my way backwards now. Yeah. You know, having ethos and mission, I feel like having an ethos and mission literally gives you superpowers. It makes you uh, bulletproof-ish. You're able to withstand bear markets, bull markets, comparing yourself with people in more stable careers, taking criticisms from very poorly informed journalists who do not normally cover technology. Like It's interesting and working my way backwards now. The contributors and community are huge because what I find is that people can end up in these communities for any reason. And it may even be just purely financial. They heard that you can make money buying tokens, mm -hmm. but you learn so much from people around you. Like that, that's a key thing. If you have an open mindset and you're a bit of a sponge, it's actually fascinating to see how diverse the group is professions, the locations where they leave, what motivates them. So it's really powerful. I guess that I would close my commentary of this slide by saying that crypto is uniquely open. Like there are some strong, thriving, fun communities such as Reddit with the many sub communities. Yes. But I think that crypto is uniquely open. And maybe this is a benefit of it being so early stage where you will find many forums, Discord servers, Telegram groups. It's, yeah, it's very easy to connect with people that have the same level of interest or passion to learn from people. So yeah. get involved. The Croncat Discord server, we'll put it on the show notes as well. Yes, we are very open and very welcoming. And I'll talk about that in a second. I want to do one comment really quick that I thought of, which is this model. If you want to quickly test it, there's a litmus test that I mentioned for earlier with Babbler. You can gauge how well your community is going to grow just by simply passing the idea. Or I, I did the magic box test, which is just, this thing isn't even built. It's just a screenshot with an email form. Pass that to the people that you think might use it. I got overwhelming response on that thing, so I knew it was worth my time. Same thing with Croncat. It was just this like simple idea. We were passing it around with, you know, friends chatting back and forth of, Hey, I need this. Wouldn't it be nice if it had this or this passing that around to so many other people, it became very clear that they would absolutely use that in their applications. So over enough period of time and over enough interviews with folks, it really became clear that was needed. So I think it's something that you need to consider is first talk to the community that you believe would join you on that mission and see if they'll back you. Yes. And the point that people always bring up is what if they steal my idea? Look, I'm going to put down the savage truth. Building is really hard. Yes. Nobody's going to steal your idea before you build. After you build it, and if it works, they'll fork you 100%. But before it's built, we don't have enough talent. There aren't enough devs. There aren't enough product people. There aren't enough designers. Time and time again, it is more likely that people join forces and create a really strong team than they'll see you having talent and a good idea and then turning around and trying to raise you for it. Yeah, there's one aspect, though, which is defensibility. If you're building a product that could be cloned, the biggest defense against cloning is community and ethos, because those are the people that stick with you. And community and ethos are very closely linked with the team. So once mm -hmm. again, partnering yeah. with people that create a stronger and stronger bond, it just makes sense for everything. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to harp on this one more time. One more time. A user is a real person that has needs and bias and assumptions. They're the person that you're really building for, not some experience, not some implementation, albeit those are the fun things. You really got to understand who that person is. Who are you talking to across the table, which is the internet? And I, I love going through those exercises to really trying to visualize who the user is. Late twenties, wears a near merchandise jumper is in 17,000 community chats and discords. Like you can get really granular. Who are they? Like one of the, the tests, I think this was Seth Godin in 2013, he started up school 2013. I listened to the podcast a few years afterwards. 
still available, probably a bit outdated. He says, look, if only 100 people in the world ever use your product, who are they? And I like it because it doesn't limit your thinking to only 100 people will ever use it. Of course, millions will use it. But who are the first 100? Mm -hmm. How do they look? What is their worldview? Where do they live? If you could go and talk to them, where would you find them? And people are in trouble when you put this really simple framework to them and they can't think of 100 people. They can't think of 100 as a number of people and they can't think of who they are. They're like, this is for everyone. Name me 100. Yeah. Where, if, I, if I go to the grocery store, will I come across someone? Yeah, that's so, the second part. Once you've done the litmus test of, of what I mentioned, I usually start with 10. Can you name 10 people that would that would match this profile? And then from there, can you do a hundred, a thousand? That's, you can start small and then make sure that it works for that small group before really scaling. I think for the sake of simplicity, Seth says a hundred, because 10 is very easy to be cheeky. It's yeah, my mom and people at the co-working space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those would be strangers. That's True. good. Good point. I love it. All right, so let's talk about Cron for a minute because this is really where my passion is. And it's really the first product I believe that really covers that whole framework that I just showed you. So before I talk about this slide, I, I promised that I would talk about why I chose Near. There are two very technical, but very practical reasons. The first one is access keys, which defines how a wallet can interact with the chain. Can it have full access and it can just do any transaction, sending some amount of money to somewhere else or some application to something else. The second one is function key, which essentially means you can only talk to this contract or this method. There's a really cool superpower that happens with that, which is you can attach an allowance where an app can prepay to interact with that contract. This is a huge problem solving UX thing because any app that you interact with now confront the fees for you to interact with something on a blockchain. And when you're talking about web two experiences, when was the last time you thought that you had to sign a transaction or pay before actually using or even looking at some of the data? Almost never. Really, we're talking about every product that has a freemium model ever, you didn't have to pay to start using it. In blockchain, in specifically near, every transaction needs to be paid for, but your app can pay on behalf of you so that your interactions can actually be free. So that's where that comes from. Many blockchains are starting to address that. And I've applied a lot of these models to different blockchains. I'm really bullish on Cosmos and Polkadot and some of the blockchains that can scale and bridge assets like IBC, for example, is amazing. So that's something that, that I'd like to bring into the fold here with Croncat in the future. All right. So let's do just briefly on that one. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you have any specific examples of instances where you've seen this account model being used in a way that is, yeah, that illustrates the power of the account model on your awesome. Absolutely. I can think of two really quick that are really fun. Berry Club. Along, this was probably the first app that really did it well, which is, hey, you want to paint some colors on this huge art canvas? We're going to let you sign in and pre-fund your account so you can paint a little bit on this big canvas. That's really awesome. I don't have to own any near at all to jump in and do that. So you just onboarded me without me having to figure out what even is near? <laughs> the second one that did it really well is uh, Pixel Pet, which is a kind of like a traditional 3v3 fight game. When you join the game, you can, you do need a little bit of near to onboard, but all of your fights and the actions within the game are pre allocated with funds. So anytime that you're clicking fight or do these actions, they're not like jumping you between your wallet and the game. You're still in game the whole time. It's just that those actions under the hood are already prepaid by the app. Yeah, there's, that's one of the things that 
make me say that Nier allows you to build experiences that feel like Web 2.0 yes. because it removes the distinction between what you're doing on the screen and what is a transaction on the blockchain and what isn't. I was very active on Berry Club back in the day. And I found it fascinating that I drew some things on the pixelated board. And afterwards, I found out that each pixel is a transaction on the Nier blockchain. Yeah. In fact, I think when I got involved, Nier only had 17,000 transactions on a 24-hour period. Now we're up to 300,000. I think it's the all-time high. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that I put through like 4,000 of those. <laughs> so aggressively painting on Berry Club. But it's fascinating how people can get really creative. And for me, I think the obvious thing is this is possible or, or it opens a lot of possibilities because the cost of transactions is very low. Mm -hmm. So you can totally see a project, a startup that wants to have a business, not just a DAP. You can just see them raising money and saying, yes, we're going to have $100,000 towards paying for all of our user fees, but we're going to be running a mind blowing game on the blockchain. And then we make money elsewhere and they make money selling items or whatever it may be. So you're able to remove the abstraction and then you monetize in other ways. The other one that is the source code is out there, but it's currently being improved. I think it's being polished is link drops. Yep. So you can actually send coins to somebody's social account and they can claim them when they create an account. It's mind blowing. It basically shifts the order in which transactions occur because yeah, I don't actually yeah. understand how it works, but it's, <laughs> it's like magic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Link drops are pretty cool. It's like a pre-funded pre-allocated wallet, which is really nice. That was an easy way to say pre-allocated yep. wallet. Yep. 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 Now, cool. Extends everything that I just said, which is you can do these access keys. You can do transactions. But what if you don't want the user to have to come back and do something? What if you want to do dollar cost averaging, which is my first example here. I need X to happen after X amount of time recurring or something. I want to do, I want to buy near once a week with USD. What about voting? Let's say you want to scale a DAO, not from 40, but to a million people. A million people voting is going to cause so much congestion in the network, but if Croncat can come along and do a finalized aggregation of the tally. That can happen. Like that can be part of the business model where it just spins off a, a scheduled job that can finalize that tally. And then you can even do stuff like an airdrop where you just iterate over a list addresses that you want to spread some of your token to. Maybe it's a, a group of supporters. You could do that. You could do a thousand people. Um, this is possible with a network of agents that are all running the same runtime and they all register to say, Hey, I want to be an agent, which gives them a place to earn rewards on chain. And a little bit of an extra fee is allocated when you execute a task to reward the agent for executing that task at a specific time. And that's possible because there's a Croncat manager contract that has the huge list of tasks and it replicates a queue on side, inside of the blockchain and delegates when those agents can execute those tasks. Inside of that manager, there's also like a little proxy setup. So it sandboxes away all of the crazy information that, you know, is how we call your contracts. And that way you keep it safe. You keep the funds and all of the execution away from the agents. So the agents, all they're doing is just being rewarded for upholding the service. And I want to mention here, the business model of Croncat is not to be extremely profitable. It's super tiny micro fees on top of a normal transaction fee. So you would think that actually wouldn't be sustainable long-term. The unique thing and I, I forgot to mention this as my second amazing thing about Nier. When you stake Nier, it's a proof of stake chain, you can earn interest by staking or delegating with uh, validators. You can also do this as a piece of your business model. So Croncat, the business model here is a lot of the tasks need you to upfront send some balance to pay for the fees. Let's say you want to execute 100 tasks. It's going to cost you 10 near. 
I'm, I'm just making stuff up. I don't actually have solid numbers there, but that 10 year is going to sit there for some amount of time that then can be staked and earn interest and cron the cron DAO can earn that interest and make that the business model versus the rewards and the extra fees of every single transaction. So if you think about from a web two model perspective, Stripe and PayPal and all these others, just keep tacking on the percent fees of every transaction. In the long-term scheme of things, that's extremely expensive for businesses. With the Web3 model and the staking and even compound farming on staking, you can make these crazy business models that actually positively impact both businesses that are utilizing Cron and the business of Cron. So that, that's a really cool thing. I want to talk through a couple of use cases, but I want to do a quick like alpha reveal, which is Cron is not just for developers or applications. It's actually going to be for no code, generic users, people that have no clue. They don't have to know what Cron is or what Cron does. So we're going to create a thing called recipes and we're going to have chefs that are going to create these recipes. So recipe is a simple thing. Hey, I want a dollar cost average. You could just say what token and when and hit go. And that's a recipe. So that's pretty sweet. Um, the person that creates that thing, if you look at NFT structures on near, an NFT represents an image plus some royalties plus some metadata, right? What if you could create a recipe that has a royalty for the chef. And so the chef could create basically an NFT recipe and they're earning a royalty every time that recipe gets spawned off for the user. And then that spawns the cron task that does these cool things in the background for you. So that's where the phase two of uh, croncat's coming. I'm not gonna get anything more than that, but that, that's where we're headed. We love some alphas and we take what we can get. I am really excited to see you working your way up the stack. We've got developers and now we're targeting end users. And once again, crypto is really weird and fascinating because end users, some people wear different hats. Mm -hmm. I am very happy to be a, a, an alpha, beta tester, whatever, for the recipes and the chefs. I've got a few use cases in my head and yeah, I'm sure that we will keep in touch. Mindful of time. so. Let's yeah. move on to use cases for Chrome. I'm, I'm going to speed through the, the rest because you can find out majority of this info on the website and also just hit me up if you've got ideas. Chromecat's really good for subscriptions, auctions, rebasing tokens, voting, rewards, dollar cost averaging. Like the list goes on forever. You even had a couple lists that came to your mind as I was talking. So I think the more we talk about Cron, the more possibilities that happen. So that, that's one really exciting thing. I have no idea where we're going to end up a year from now. It's going to be amazing to see what kind of we'll happens make there. Some money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I realize um, you don't like making money is okay. You need to pay rent. The, the thing about Croncat is it's opening up the door for anybody to tack on and create the network effect and make money by causing those network effects. This thing is a platform more than just a, a product. Brilliant. Do you know... Uh, uh, I think it's Microsoft definition of a platform. So a platform is when the sum of all the things that are built on top is greater than the underlying thing. So when Facebook says that they're a platform, that's bullshit. They're not <laughs> a platform. They have everything centralized. They capture all the value. People in the peripheries are allowed to play maybe with mm -hmm. rules that change all the time to not let them get too big. Windows would be a platform or, or even just like the Apple store. The things built on top greatly exceed on the shop evaluations. But I think Croncat will be very clearly a platform because there's going to be a universe of things built on top. That's exactly the goal. Yes, it's a, a easy utility, but that's not like the long-term vision. That's not the ethos. We want to be, we're going to be the community that creates all these crazy tasks and People can fork the tasks and remix and build on top of other tasks and get crazy. I want to pitch Amazing. a couple more concepts really quick. It doesn't stop at Croncat. I'm building another thing called Pingbox, which is notifications. You can subscribe and each user owns their own preferences and the DAP can customize templates that sends out 
based the trigger on blockchain events. The cool thing there is it's still early. So I've got some beta testers that are helping out. But the whole idea here is to close the viral loop of notifying the user to come back in. If you remember, Gachi needs two things, Croncat and Pingbox. Croncat for the timing, like, hey, it needs to die. It's going to die. And Pingbox to say, oh, sorry, your animal died. <laughs> So and the death has to be prepaid. That's a big one. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. So well, what I'm awesome. really going for, and this is the utility layer that I'm building, I'm calling it layer Y. We were talking about Croncat being a protocol or a platform, sorry, that people can build on top of. That's really what layer Y is a decentralized collection of utilities that applications build on top of that are backed by blockchain. So that's a long-term vision that, that I'm building. And that's the ethos and journey that I'm working towards. And if you look, follow us on Twitter and all that, Croncat is backed by a DAO. That DAO is live. It's building with four different types of users and we're really delivering something special. So if you're interested, this is a shout out to the whole audience. I'd love if you want to join me on that mission. Help us integrate, help us grow in any way possible. I, I have a couple artists that are just like going to town because they love Chromecat. So here's how you can reach out if you're interested. Create things that you're passionate about and meet a need. Make yeah. sure that happens. Make it Web3. A hundred percent. And even if you have no idea how you could use Chromecat, even if you didn't understand what Chromecat is, the content community is extremely open and they're very fun to hang out as well. So it would be a great place to get started meeting people in the Web 3.0 world. I can guarantee you that even if you have no idea where you will end up in three months, like most of us are, I shortened the time from you said 12 months, I think three months. It's like crazy to yeah. me. Definitely get involved. And that's how we start. If you're on YouTube and you've watched the whole thing, you have time to spin up the Discord server and hang out with us. And yeah, we'd love to see you there. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for Travers, having me. Thanks so much for your time and for being so generous. 